This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert, caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Thanks for sharing your beautiful summer Sunday. On several occasions to date, we've focused on women's health. Now, as promised on Father's Day, our focus today is men's health. You'll learn some very important information about prostate cancer and enlarged prostate and what to do if you see blood in your urine. With us is an internationally recognized urologist, a clinician and scientist from Thomas Jefferson University and Hospital, Dr. Leonard Gamella. He's the Bernard W. Godwin Professor of Prostate Cancer, the chairman of our Department of Urology, the Senior Director of Clinical Affairs for Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center, the Enterprise VP for Urology at the Jefferson Health System, and the Editor-in-Chief of the Canadian Journal of Urology International. Welcome, Len. It's so great you're here with us today. Well, thanks, Dr. Ritchie. It's great here to be with your radio audience. Thanks for the invitation. So I think it's good to start with defining what the prostate is. I'm not sure people really understand what it is and its job. So uh, men have a prostate, most women uh, don't have a prostate, and basically what the prostate is, it's a gland that sits between the bladder and the urethra, the tube that leads urine out of the bladder, and basically its job is really to provide fluid for the ejaculate. When a man ejaculates and has sperm come out, it's the prostate that actually provides that fluid so that the sperm can leave the body and go on and do their mission in life. And I think that's important for people to hear because the tube that leaves the bladder travels through the prostate and picks up fluid from both places. And that'll be important when we talk later and try to understand if you have certain symptoms, how these uh, organs are connected. So prostate cancer, Len, you have so much experience and and, uh, depth of knowledge. We know it's the most common cause of cancer in men, but screening or the testing of asymptomatic patients is somewhat controversial. Why is that? So uh, I'm glad you raised that point, Marianne, because one thing uh, I'd like your audience to understand is that PSA 
The prostate-specific antigen is what it stands for. The PSA blood test is one of the best tests that we have in men who have been treated for prostate cancer. There is no better test in all of medicine for someone who's been treated for cancer and can have a blood test to show that the cancer is gone. Where we have a little bit of challenge with screening for prostate cancer has to do with the fact that many men who do not have prostate cancer may have an elevated PSA level. That can be elevated because they have a very big prostate, because they have a prostate infection, because they've had recent trauma to the prostate, or because they have prostate cancer. So that's why the PSA test and screening for prostate cancer is a little controversial. The second reason it's controversial is we have an adage in our field that states that many men will die with prostate cancer rather than of prostate cancer because for reasons we really don't understand, as men get older, many of them will develop little spots of cancer in their prostate that are never going to harm them in their lifetime. So another reason for the controversy is, hey, guys, you're finding spots of cancer that are never going to harm a man. Why should you be doing that? So that's some of the controversy that we have with screening for prostate cancer. And that makes sense. I guess most often it grows pretty slowly. And as you say, if the prostate cancer outlives the, the patient, why put the person through the, the risks and the discomfort of uh, the testing and the treatment, right? And uh, I guess you have the expression overdiagnosis too. Even if somebody does have, I mean, as you say, the PSA, that's a protein created by the prostate. Am I right that goes into the bloodstream and that's how you test for an overactive prostate, right? And um, well, we, then, yeah, we, we, we don't really we don't really say overactive prostate. What we say is that the, the, the prostate may have inflammation, it may have an infection, or sometimes just a very large prostate spills a lot of PSA out into the bloodstream. But again, the big thing we worry about is that the PSA blood test is elevated. It could signify the presence of prostate cancer. Right. And But I'm saying that uh, even if you do have the cancer there, you really want to sit down with the patient and say, what are the benefits and risks? Um, we know that um, aggressive therapy can lead to impotence urinary incontinence, bowel dysfunction. So you really want to be sure and make a good decision with the patient. Um, and the other issue is if you have a positive PSA and then you go looking and you don't find a cancer, maybe it's because it's falsely elevated, as you said, and that can really cause a lot of anxiety for the patient who's worried, did we miss it? So um, very good thinking about that. If a person does decide to go forward, if a man says, okay, I want to go with the biopsy, that's a safe, effective technique. Um, tell us about that a little bit. So um, we have a lot of blood tests and urine tests beyond the PSA blood test to help us make a decision if a man needs a prostate biopsy. All of the tests in the world that we do, whether it's a special blood test, a special urine test, uh, an MRI or ultrasound examination of the prostate, the diagnosis of cancer can only be made by looking at tissue from the prostate under a microscope. And that requires a biopsy. 
And uh, today, most biopsies are either done through the rectum or through the space between the scrotum and the rectum where needles are passed into the prostate with some type of anesthesia, tissues removed from the prostate, and then the pathologist looks at under the microscope. That's the only way to definitely say you do or don't have prostate cancer. As with any cancer, really, just as a GI, we need tissue. If we see something on an x-ray and it looks like a round uh, growth that shouldn't be there, what if it's a stool or something? We have to have tissue before we subject people to treatment that could be harmful. And I guess, too, um, surgery, radiation, they're common treatments. We're going to talk about the treatments, but as we said, they can lead to some pretty nasty um, side effects. Len, what increases a patient's risk for prostate cancer? Well, the known risk factors for prostate cancer are primarily age. Most men over the age of 60 um, are at risk for prostate cancer. Also, African Americans have an increased risk. And lastly, family history. And not only family history of prostate cancer, but family history in other relatives, such as breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and pancreatic cancer, may increase a man's risk for prostate cancer. And uh, we mentioned that because BRCA gene carriers, and as you say, know your family history. We say that with every show, it can make such a difference in, in your profile and your family members. The BRCA gene, but also the Lynch syndrome, we've talked about that so many times on the show, that bumps the risk for colon, prostate, pancreatic. Let's take a little break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Len Gamella from Jefferson. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. And we're back with Dr. Len Gamella here on Your Radio Doctor. We're talking about prostate cancer today, and we're talking about risk factors. Age certainly is one. Family history is so important with all cancers. And as we were talking about prostate cancer, we know that BRCA gene carriers are at increased risk and the Lynch syndrome. We've talked about that on the show. And we see pedigrees that have colon cancer, breast cancer, GYN cancers, prostate, and now pancreas. So, so important to ask your relatives when you're together for family occasions. And African-American men, you were saying too, Len, are at increased risk as they are with colon cancer. Um, how about diet? Does that have anything to do with risk for prostate cancer in particular? You know, that's, that's a very uh, provocative point. Uh, there are many studies that suggest sort of the Eastern uh, Asian diet uh, might be more protective, uh, less meat uh, and saturated fats. Uh, but uh, that's really never been conclusively uh, proven. We, we believe that a healthy lifestyle, what's good for the heart is good for the prostate. Mm-hmm. So uh, we do advocate, uh, you know, low-fat diet, uh, limiting alcohol, lim- uh, no tobacco, uh, exercise, whatever's good for the heart is good for the prostate. But there is, again, some suggestion of dietary factors, but it's never been definitively proven. Mm-hmm. So we go back to the PSA test, and it's a protein 
produced by the prostate, found in the blood. So that sounds easy. We check a, a blood test and that says yes or no. But we know there could be false positives, false negatives. If somebody has a false positive, it can be from, as you said, trauma, like recent catheterization for, uh, you know, if you're in the hospital or something, or if you've been riding a bike. So if you get a positive back, do you tell the patient to avoid uh, strenuous exercise like biking or even sexual activity mm -hmm. for a couple days and then repeat it? Is that the first step? So there's a very famous study that was done at Sloan Kettering uh, where you did some of your training that mm -hmm. uh, basically says that don't respond to the first PSA test. Repeat it several months later because about 30 to 40 percent of the time an elevated PSA will come back down to normal. So repeating the PSA is important. And again, what we do tell patients that have a repeat PSA test is avoid sexual activity for about 24 to 48 hours and avoid strenuous bike riding, for example. Those two factors have been known to occasionally falsely elevate your PSA. Mm -hmm. And that's so calming for people to hear um, because having the word cancer in the same sentence with your name does not feel good. So when you repeat it, if it is still elevated, what are the markers, what are the metrics that we'd say, okay, it's time to see your urologist. If you go to your primary doc, primary care doc and they say, gee, your PSA is over level what? So one of the issues that we have is what's a normal PSA? And mm -hmm. if you look at most laboratory tests, it says that 4.0 is the normal PSA. Uh, but in reality, uh, as you get a little bit older and you get a little bit of enlargement in the prostate, that normal PSA in a 40-year-old may not be the same in, let's say, a 70-year-old. But in general, the 4.0 number is kind of the line in the sand. Many of us in the field of urology and prostate cancer detection believe that that number should probably be lower uh, somewhere around uh, 1.5 or 2, and that if a primary care doctor sees a patient with a PSA that's over that number, they should probably send them over to his or her urologist because we want to take the burden off the primary care doctor. They have so many things to worry about, you know, cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, that if someone has an elevated PSA, that we should probably see them as a urology specialist and help sort out, is this something needs to be worried about or is this something that could be followed? Mm -hmm. And I guess I know that if a patient's taking a, a medication that's commonly used for benign prostatic hypertrophy or BPH in large prostate, finasteride, if they have a PSA rise more than 0.5 or half a point, is that another reason you'd say see the urologist? Yeah, so that gets yeah that gets kind of into the the tricky part of uh, screening somebody. Certainly, a drug that you mentioned like finasteride that does shrink the prostate will reduce the PSA by about 50% in about three months. So that any rise, as you pointed out, once someone has a low PSA and any rise in their uh, PSA while they're on drugs like finasteride or a related drug, dutasteride, should trigger some uh, further investigation by their providers. Mm -hmm. And again, as a GI doctor, we occasionally do uh, digital rectal exams and we might find a bump on the prostate. That's another reason why we would say this has to be really studied by a urologist. Lynn, I'd love to jump uh, to the newest, the latest therapies, and I'm no, no one better to ask than you. As a student, it was pretty limited. Uh, now, many years later, I'm just 
mesmerized by the various options for people. So you sit down with the patient who decides they want to move forward with biopsy and treatment. What do you tell them? You're going to look at their medical condition and their age and comorbidities. What kind of options do you offer people? So um, the, the, the first thing we tell patients is that when we do a biopsy in 2021 and we find cancer, we may not treat you for that cancer. That, that doesn't mean we ignore you. But if we find a cancer that is not aggressive cancer, again, we talked about that earlier, that many men develop these non-aggressive cancers that don't really need to be treated. The first thing we warn the patient about, if we find cancer, we may choose to watch you. And there's a lot of factors go into this, and that approach is called active surveillance. And actually today, with our advances in understanding of prostate cancer, uh, over 50% of men that we see today, we actually don't treat them with something such as surgery or radiation. We offer them this concept of active surveillance where we periodically check their PSA, and every once in a while we'll repeat a biopsy. But today, the standard of care, and again, we're really going to focus on early prostate cancer because uh, we want to find the cancers when they're early. That's when they're most treatable and have the highest likelihood of cure. Um, when we find early prostate cancer that is contained within the prostate, uh, the main treatments today are either surgery to remove the prostate or some type of radiation. And that represents probably uh, the other half of the patients that we see. And a lot of that, you know, patients have to understand the risk and benefits of each treatment. Um, and some of the risk and benefits may be important to one patient, and other patients may not worry about some aspects of the potential for side effects. But having talked about the side effects, Marianne, I could tell you that we are so much better than we used to be in treating prostate cancer, whether with surgery or with radiation, we've really had dramatic improvements because of some of the technical aspects of both surgery and radiation today for early prostate cancer. Sure, and we had a great conversation the other day, and I thank you for that, because as a GI doc, I keep hearkening to the patients I see. We saw for years many patients would have radiation, they would say, I don't want to go through a radical prostatectomy. I'll go with the radiation. And five hours, five days, five years later, 10 years later, they might develop what we call radiation proctitis or, you know, the, the rectum sits right behind the bladder and prostate. And we would see this inflammation and bleeding uh, crop up. And now with, as you say, better technique, better technology, digitalized, uh, focused, robotic, all those Star Wars kind of words that we use. It's more carefully done and the side effects have dropped tremendously. Tell us, Len, what's the um, benefit of proton therapy? Can you share a little bit about that for people to understand? Yeah, so proton therapy is really a major breakthrough in the treatment of cancers because it gives you very, very precise targeting. However, for prostate cancer, we have learned over the last five years that while it's a good treatment for prostate cancer, the side effect profile and the disease control are probably no better than our standard, less costly radiation techniques. So uh, while proton is good, uh, it's not really proven itself to be better. Proton is excellent where you need to target a very specific tumor, such as an eyeball tumor or a brain tumor. But in the prostate, we need to treat a little bit area around the prostate. Uh, and that's where you kind of lose the benefits of proton therapy. 
because you have to you have to treat a margin around the site. That's very interesting. Um, we'll be right back with more about prostate cancer and treatment. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Len Gamella. Len, I would guess that of all the specialties, we tie for first place for being the least popular. I do colonoscopy and you do your exams. Am I right? Yes, that's correct. The lower we specialize in the lower half of the body. <laughs> um, so we were talking about uh, treatment and proton therapy treatment for prostate cancer. What happens if a gentleman has the proton therapy and then they have frequent urination afterwards? What do you think that's all about? So, uh, you know, any radiation treatment uh, is a double-edged sword, whether it's standard radiation or proton radiation. Um, and what can happen is, is that you can have some sort of irritation uh, around the prostate and around the bladder. Uh, and sometimes you actually get some swelling of the prostate before it begins to shrivel a little bit after the, uh, after the treatment. So any of these can cause a little bit of more urinary frequency. But fortunately, uh, most of the symptoms of radiation, regardless of the type, tend to go away and get much better with time. Good to know. So let's talk about an enlarged prostate. Not fond. Uh, I know that just even from my student days that, um, as you mentioned, risk uh, factors include age. Most men start to develop enlargement with time. Um, I was reading the other day that it can begin in our 40s, saying R. I'm not a gentleman, but <laughs> but probably 60% of men by age 60 and 80% by 80. And does the enlarged gland lead to lower urinary tract symptoms? Yeah, so, you know, most men um, and their spouses, the minute they start to have some urinary difficulty, getting up at night, rushing to the bathroom, the first thing that goes through everyone's head is, oh, my God, I might have prostate cancer. And while that's certainly a possibility, more men suffer from benign prostatic hypertrophy, or BPH, as we commonly use the term, which is something that happens, again, as men get a little bit older, it is a benign swelling of the prostate. And as we mentioned earlier, since the bladder and the prostate and the urethra all are connected together, when the urine leaves the body, it flows through the middle of the prostate. So when a man gets a little bit older and he gets a simple swelling of the prostate that happens with age due to some hormone changes, uh, it can cause symptoms. And those symptoms tend to be frequency, frequent urination, getting up two or three times at night, uh, a slow stream, inability to start the stream, or even men have some dribbling uh, after they finish urination. So again, most of the time, it's not cancer, it's benign. But regardless, cancer can also present with these type of symptoms. So if they're really troubling you, it's good to talk to your doctor about it. Mm -hmm. And I think people need to hear that frequency of sexual activity nor a vasectomy can increase the risk for BPH. And the BPH is not a risk for cancer. I think people need to know that there are separate entities and don't, you know, true, true and unrelated, would you say? Yeah, we try to kind of describe them as passengers on the same bus. 
Uh, because mm-hmm. a man has BPH doesn't necessarily mean that uh, he's at increased risk for developing prostate cancer. Again, to, to not to be repetitive, but men have to understand that most of the time, urinary symptoms that we discussed are due to benign enlargement. Now, there's certainly other causes, but the most common one is just benign enlargement of the prostate. Mm-hmm. And I guess the only emergency situation would be if somebody has acute urinary retention. And by that, I've had patients with pancreatitis, and the first treatment for that is to just bombard the person, the patient with the fluids. And as that builds up into a bladder that's compromised by an enlarged prostate, we've seen people that really are in pain. So, um, and I guess, too, we have to think, what are the other issues or conditions that could lead to urinary tract symptoms? Maybe a stricture in the urethra from previous infection, or if a person has a bladder infection. But how about non-urologic conditions that can affect how much urine a, a, a person passes? Yeah, so that's a, that's a very good observation because a lot of patients are on fluid pills, Um, They may have diabetes that might cause more urine to come out. So there can be medical conditions that cause patients to have urinary frequency. Again, going over your medication list, going over your diet, uh, being screened for diabetes, for example, uh, all of these are also important because, again, they can contribute to symptoms in the urinary tract, even though they are not necessarily uh, directly involved with a disease of the urinary tract. Mm-hmm. So the other parts of that person's history, when we talk to them, we want to ask them, are you seeing blood when you pass your urine? Uh, again, are you experiencing incontinence um, and urinary retention? Those are the sorts of things that would say they're really urgent reasons why you have to see a urologist. But you're going to ask when the patient comes, have you had an infection? Have you had any um, tests that involved an instrument in the urethra? Um do you have a history of any neurologic problems? Are you a cigarette smoker? There it is again, cigarette smoking, not only prostate cancer, but it could cause an enlarged prostate, right? So, I mean, the biggest problem we have with cigarette smoking is bladder cancer uh, that can cause blood mm. in the urine. Um, right. You know, when you say, you know, when you say cigarette smoking, it's immediately lung cancer. But the reality is many of our patients and, in fact, our professional association guidelines uh, suggest that when a patient has blood in their urine, ask them about the smoking history because that gets our radar up for the fact that they may have not prostate cancer, but perhaps have bladder cancer, for example. But remember, there's a lot of causes for blood in the urine kidney stones, infections, enlarged prostate, and prostate cancer. So there can be many different causes for blood in the urine. Um, And, uh, you know, sometimes people on blood thinners as well uh, may have Mm -hmm. too much blood thinner, uh, and that may also cause blood in the urine. Mm -hmm. I had a patient recently who told me he had been through a really frightening week. He was passing clots blood clots. He was taking a lot of Advil for back pain. Turns out he had been treated for uh, benign prostatic uh, hypertrophy, and he was taking a medication, and it was time to taper off that, and a combination of the Advil and some retention, and he was bleeding, and thank goodness the workup, we're going to talk about the workup for uh, blood in the urine, but um, that's an important thing to say, that blood thinners, or even if you're taking a lot of Advil or aspirin, and think about other over-the-counter medicines that can affect bladder contractility and affect your, your stream. So 
I guess it's important to ask patients to keep a diary too. How much volume they're seeing, frequency, are they getting up at night? And jot down their fluid intake. Are they using incontinence pads? Is their defecation frequency changed? How does that play into it, their defecation pattern? Yeah, you know, you touched on a good point. Over-the-counter medications, I mean, everybody knows, you know, things like uh, uh, anything that uh, the cough and cold medications and things like that specifically uh, will say on the over-the-counter labels, hey, if you've got prostate problems or trouble urinating, be careful uh, with taking these medications because they can affect uh, the urination as well. Well, and I think, too, um, and you're going to talk about testing, um, Ultrasound is a good way to look at the prostate. Cystoscopy, gosh, you could do that right in the office. Um, but when it comes to treating an enlarged prostate that needs attention, in the old days, I think you told me it was before 1991, TERP or transurethral, excuse me, transurethral resection of the prostate. There are two ways to approach this, I guess, Len. You can either take away tissue from the prostate or help to um, open up the, the urethra. Tell us about the treatments that are available now because that old-fashioned TERP probably led to a lot of sexual dysfunction and then problems urinating after the treatment. Well, you know, in spite of uh, what it may, uh, the challenges that a transurethral resection of the prostate has, uh, it still represents the gold standard in most cases. Uh, it's done with a telescope through the urethra, and you take out little chips of the prostate. Um, benign prosthetic hypertrophy, I describe like an avocado with the pit on the inside, and it's the swelling of that pit that caused the blockage. So that's the traditional treatment. In the early 1990s, medications came along, uh, things like finasteride, dutasteride, uh, tamsulosin, uh, are now medications that either shrink the prostate or relax the muscles around the prostate to allow the urine to flow more easily. But we've gone far beyond the TERP today. We have many different laser techniques. We have steam techniques, if you can believe it, where you can superheat the prostate with anesthesia. And we actually have um, a technique where you actually put sutures in to pull the sides of the prostate uh, away from the obstruction. So we have literally dozens of different ways today to treat an enlarged prostate that's bothering a patient. And the stitches uh, technique is called Eurolift, am I right? That's correct. If people wanted to read about it. So if a patient is suffering from urinary frequency until they get to see you, you're going to hope that they stop drinking so much fluid, especially for a couple of hours before they go to bed. Maybe stay away from caffeine and alcohol, both of which are natural diuretics or uh, influences that make you void more frequently. And the other thing I've learned from listening to you, Len, is to double void. That means after you empty your bladder, you wait a minute and then try again. Don't strain and don't push to empty. Am I right? That, have, that helps a lot of men who have, carry a little bit of extra urine in their bladder, particularly when they get up in the morning. Uh, they go to the bathroom, shave, brush your teeth, and try to avoid again. And sometimes that is very helpful in keeping the bladder and uh, empty and healthy. Mm -hmm. Because if urine stagnates in the bladder, it sets you up for bladder stones and some of the things we're going to talk about in our wrap-up. Let's take a little break, and I want to thank Dr. Len Gamella for being here. We'll be right back. 
Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented in part by Recovery Centers of America. When needed, call RCA 1-888-RECOVERY. A special thank you to Dr. Len Gamella for all we've learned about prostate cancer and large prostates. Let's finally uh, just quickly, Len, what does a patient do if he sees blood in his urine? What are the possibilities? Well, there, there's two types of blood in the urine. There's what we call gross hematuria, where the patient actually sees reddish uh, or rusty urine. And then there's microscopic hematuria, where it gets picked up because of a urine analysis by a laboratory. So, But clearly, it's not normal uh, to have blood in the urine. Uh, it's very abnormal. Uh, ladies sometimes who are still of a child-rearing age might have some kind of a confusion between blood in the urine and a normal menstrual period. Uh, however, it's very important to differentiate the two, particularly in men. Uh, men and women can suffer from infections, from kidney stones, from blockage. Uh, and also from cancers of the urinary tract. All of these may cause blood in the urine. Mm-hmm. And that's the message. If you see blood in your urine, that's not normal. And if it comes and then it goes away, maybe don't be so calm and say, well, I'm, I'm good to go, literally, uh, because it could come back. Or it could be something that, you know, you've stopped taking your Advil and it's uh, hiding in there. And as you mentioned earlier, extreme exercise sometimes can cause blood in the urine. So if somebody has blood in their urine, you're going to do a CAT scan because you want to make sure the kidneys aren't the source of bleeding or the bladder. And then you're going to take a peek into the bladder. Like we said, just in the office, you can do cystoscopy pretty comfortably for people. Yes. Yes, that's correct. We have fiber optic scopes and a little bit of anesthesia in the urethra, and literally it takes us a minute or two to examine the uh, urethra, the prostate, and the bladder, or in ladies, the urethra and the bladder. Mm-hmm. And infection, too, is probably a pretty common one. People can have a bladder infection or a chronic cystitis. That means a chronic inflammation of the bladder. So you're going to tell patients, Lent, to drink their eight glasses of water a day, right? And what else? Well, drinking a lot of water uh, is good for you. Um, Eight glasses of water is kind of the magic number. If you've got a history of kidney stones, that's the best way to keep the system uh, uh, flushed out. Also for infections. Uh, If you have very concentrated urine, uh, you're more likely to get infections. But just one quick comment about kidney stones. A lot of people think that just because they eat cheese or drink milk, they get kidney stones and they avoid milk or dairy products, the reality is don't just assume that without a special analysis of your urine and your stones, if you happen to have them, sometimes it's bad to avoid calcium and can actually increase your risk of kidney stones. So just drinking milk or stopping drinking milk may not be the best thing for you if you've got a history of kidney stones and you need that detailed chemical study of your urine. And if you do pass a stone, grab it so we can analyze it because there are different types of stones with different etiologies. So that's a very important point. Len, one last question. In countries I've learned from you that are plant-based diet, um, we see uh, more bladder stones. So translating to here, can the keto diet set people up for bladder stones? Yeah, we have to be have to be careful. Um, you know, a lot of people who have heavy vitamin C use and certain diet changes that shift towards a plant-based diet, that's a problem around the world. Uh, too much plant 
uh, intake actually can increase the risk of developing bladder stones. Uh, we don't see bladder stones too often in the United States unless it's associated with a blockage of the urinary tract. But again, you got to remember that sometimes things are a double-edged sword. What may help one medical condition may actually worsen another one. Well, Len, thank you for all your wonderful information today. And I know everybody at Jefferson loves you. And if somebody wanted to reach you, they could always call 1-800-JEFF-NOW. And I want to make sure that they don't make the mistake of calling, just call Len the plumber. Because that's a different Len, right? That is a different Len. I wish I had his money, but uh, that's, that's the way it is. Well, I guess of sorts you are a plumber, but I, and I say that lovingly and respectfully. Len, thank you so much. It was fantastic to have you here today. Well, Marianne, thank you, and I hope your audience uh, learned a little bit today about some of the uh, things that we deal with in the field of urology, but thank you for this invitation. Wonderful. Thanks. And now, for your real champions, I call this segment, We Are Family. On Super Bowl Sunday 2003, Pete Ritchie went from cheering for his favorite football team to cheering for his son, Tommy. On that fateful day, the three-and-a-half-year-old toddler was diagnosed with leukemia. Pete and his wife, Julie, had been watching his low-grade fever for a few days, noticed he just wasn't himself. But then they got the diagnosis, but they were ready to go into the game fighting. They took Tommy to Nemours A.I. DuPont Hospital for Children. As the doctor approached, Pete said, Doc, if it's bad news, just tell me. Don't dance around. The doctor said, it is cancer, but I'm going to make sure that you dance at Tommy's wedding. ALL, acute lymphocytic leukemia. It's the childhood leukemia that, compared to other forms, is the one with the best promise for recovery. But that doesn't mean it's a straight run to the end zone. Pete and Julie both wanted to stay at the hospital all night, every night, with their little boy. Julie insisted it was her place as the mom to stay by her baby's side. Pete then said, We have another little boy who needs you, too. Joey needs your kiss goodnight and wants to see you when he wakes up, too. Balancing attention between their two boys, huge medical bills that could often cost a family their home while still holding down their jobs, not easy. At the young age of 45, Pete had a heart attack, but Pete had the grace to consider himself lucky because during the testing, the doctor discovered a tumor in his kidney and with surgery, this early cancer was cured. Otherwise, it would have grown silently for years. Through it all, Tommy was the star in the game. Countless days in the hospital, Pete remembers so well the day when nurses couldn't get an IV into Tommy's hand. His veins were scarred from all the chemo. Imagine being five years old and the only option was to put an IV in his toe. Painful and scary. Finally, he went to surgery for a large IV port. And when he came out, the nurses gave him a very special teddy bear who lived in Tommy's embrace from that day forward. One day while leaving the hospital after a long stay, Tommy turned to his dad and said he wished other kids could have a teddy bear that would help them too. On that day, Pete made a promise to his little boy and together they would help every other child facing cancer at DuPont receive a toy that would make them feel loved and take away their fear and pain, even if just for a moment. In the past 17 years, Tommy's Gifts for Kids has donated over $100,000 worth of toys to children at Nemours A.I. DuPont Hospital for Children. 
As for Tommy, he's a healthy, strong, handsome 21-year-old junior at Drexel University. He runs marathons and eats a very healthy diet. It took three and a half years of treatment, but Tommy and his family are eternally grateful. And to show his gratitude, Tommy delivers the toys to the hospital. Recently, he met a five-year-old boy with newly diagnosed leukemia. He said, you're going to make it. Look at me. I played soccer, lacrosse, and baseball through high school, and now I'm in college. Tommy gave him a teddy bear and got his own wish when he watched the child hug his new furry friend. We salute you, Tommy, Richie, and your family, Pete, Julie, and brother Joey. You're real champions. Help Tommy help children living with cancer. Donate to TG4K.com, Tommy's Gifts for Kids. Website is TG4K, the number 4, TG4K.com, Tommy's Gifts for Kids. Each week we end our show with the story of a real champion. This one was especially beautiful. And in case you're wondering, this Richie family is not related. We spell our names differently. Please send us a story of a champion from your family, your school or church, workplace or community. These are stories that are meant to be shared. Tune in each week to Your Radio Doctor here on WPHT and Women to Watch on Sunday nights at 7. Visit our website, yourradiodoctor.net. Listen to this show again or any of our shows. Find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Thanks for joining us. We have lots of great shows in upcoming weeks. Skin cancer, CPR. Keep it here for the next two hours of magic with Sid Mark and the Sounds of Sinatra. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, helping you to always remember that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.